If you're the average network engineer working on the average network, you probably haven't shifted to the disaggregated model. Most folks are still buying and installing vertically integrated networking hardware and software. That is, if you buy a box from, say, Juniper, you bought it with Junos on board. It's integrated. That's the model we're talking about. Our sponsor today is DriveNets, and we're talking about why it is time to take the disaggregated model, where you buy white box hardware and put a network operating system of your choice on it, seriously. Along the way, we're going to hit DriveNet's network architectures and operating models and get you thinking about why disaggregated networking might make sense for you and the business you run a network for. Our guests are Duty Cohen, Senior Director, Product Marketing, and Ron Almug, Head of Product Strategy, both at DriveNet's. Duty, it's been a while since DriveNets has been on Packet Pushers, and so we, we need to do a review here. You guys haven't been on since episode 517 back in May 2020, so not too long, but long enough that uh, give us the elevator pitch of what DriveNets is. Network engineers want to hear this, so uh, that nice, punchy 10,000-foot view. Sure. So in one sentence, we build networks like cloud. And that means that we take the networking functions, be it uh, you know, a BGP router or a firewall or whatever network function you have in your network, and we run it inside containers. We run it as microservices over a shared infrastructure, which is built from white boxes, from commercial off-the-shelf white boxes, which you can buy from your favorite ODM provider. We do it in order to uh, you know, create an environment in which you can put any network function over the infrastructure you have. So any network function, when you say that, I'm thinking by reflex, routing, firewalls, uh, load balancers, these sorts of things? Absolutely. Grinets builds the virtualization layer or the hypervisor that abstracts the white boxes, the hardware, towards an application that runs on top of it. And those applications can come from DriveNets be it the routing functions or from third party, which provide the load balancer or the firewall or the DDoS mitigation function. Okay. Since we chatted with you folks just over a year ago, has anything fundamentally changed or any major new products that you've brought to market? Wow. A lot has changed. A lot has been done. Um, the previous call we had was roughly when I joined the company and it's been a roller coaster um, ever since. First of all, AT&T has, uh, you know, has been made public. Uh, they made the announcement that, in fact, they are running our solution in their core network. Uh, we can you know, dive into the details of this um, a little bit more uh, moving forward. We introduced multi-service, uh, multi-service routing. So multiple different routing services can run on the same instance of the, of the network cloud. Previously, it was kind of one instance. The concept was there, but now it's also implemented. As Dudi mentioned, um, we can run multiple different services as well. Uh, not only stuff that is being developed here in DriveNet, but also third-party companies who has been you know, very professional of building firewalls. We're not trying to uh, compete with these or, or build something alternative, but just use what's existing as a network function, as an instance that runs on that infrastructure that we call uh, network cloud. Finance, uh, we are a unicorn now, and we weren't before. So <laughs> we, we recruited $200 million, $208 million in over uh, $1 billion valuation, which is, which is very cool. Um, now that, so let's just turn that into something that people can, can leverage. If somebody's going to give you $280 million in funding, then they believe that you've got a story going forward. Now, that's not like they gave you a wallet full of cash and said, here, go and spend it. That's all... <laughs> 
but that's a that's something that comes over time. But the point is, is that you've now got a business story that says, um, we've got a product that's viable. We've got key anchor tenants. We're a strategic business partner to key people. So now we're ready to 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 partner with more organizations, right? Absolutely. That's exactly the point. Um, it goes beyond AT&T. AT&T mm. is one example. There are other customers uh, where we are already in deployment and many others uh, where we are engaged. There is a wider span of our people uh, globally. There is a wider network of partners that we're working with uh, in various places. So the go-to-market strategy is much more robust. Uh, the target market is is better defined and it's big. That that would explain why um, investors are looking to to kind of jump in on the wagon and take this ride with uh, with uh, DriveNets. One other aspect which I can mention um, is that this aggregation is becoming some sort of a standard, uh, not standard by the you know the protocol definition of it, but uh, the uh, tip the telecom infra project has launched an RFI a couple of months back, uh, which is a very close definition of what we are doing. And of course, they are defining this as the de facto standard in the industry. Results on this have not been made public yet, but, uh, uh, you know. So this is, again, just to make that relevant to an engineering audience, this, again, the TIP project is actually not so much defining a technology stack, it's defining the APIs between the sections. So in the same way that IOTF sort of defines protocols, TIP, the Telecom Infrastructure Project, defines the components and then the sort of bonding that can go between each of the components. So APIs, models, data exchange, that type of stuff. So that is key that you're participating in that because if you're into the telecoms infrastructure or you're into that sort of large systems, you need to understand how that your supplies are going to fit into that model. Precisely. So we mentioned disaggregation. We're talking about it being a standard. We mentioned TIP, and you'd think you'd think everybody in the world was all of a sudden going with this model, but that actually isn't the case. Uh, so for those folks who are trying to get their heads around this, why they would go with the disaggregated model, um, explain it to them from a business perspective. What opportunities does this aggregation open up for for network architectures or for businesses that they, what can they do that they couldn't do before? Okay, so actually quite a lot. When you go for a disaggregated architecture, you can gain some uh, you know, scalability and, and service flexibility in your network. That means that, for instance, if you want to deploy a new service across your network, you do not have to run uh, uh, with track rolls and dispatch crews to install new hardware because the hardware is there. The hardware becomes a generic part of your network. And when you talk about disaggregation as a cloud-native architecture, that means that you can have service placement according to the available resources and and parameters of the network, like capacity and latency, which are available at a given time, and locate those network functions wherever you need in the network. Now, I agree that disaggregation is not the de facto in most of the network, but in other networks domain, if you look at, for instance, 5G core architecture, or data center connectivity, this it is there. Uh, 5G core networks are disaggregated. Everything that has to do with what happens inside and between data center is disaggregated. So different network domain go on with disaggregation in different pace. But I think that operators are 
starting to understand the the great values of disaggregation and and uh, you know mm. adopting it's been a it's been a long road though right getting people to accept that the hardware is separate from the operating system is separate from the applications can be separated from the software defined controller has been a long like we're 10 years into that or maybe longer even i think when did we start talking about it ethan 2008 something like that we started to see glimmers of SDN sort of starting in, and in 2011, we really saw the first generation of controllers come along. It's been a long, slow road, but is there anything happening now? Like there's a tipping point. It feels to me like everything is software-defined, like the end of finger-defined networking is inside. I think there's a, there are two tipping points. One has to do with the business. So the fact that operators are not just counting the money on the way to the bank anymore, but struggling to maintain their profitability Mm -hmm. means that they need to change something in how they build the network. But also from the aspect of technology, if you talk about SDN and more than that, if you talk about NFV and VNF that, uh, you know, were supposed to take the disaggregation to the networking world, this, uh, you know, was okay for the control plane to some, to some extent, but when you wanted to do it with the data plane, it was just not scalable enough and not cost-efficient enough. What we have today is hardware that it is networking optimized. You have ASICs, you have NPUs, the networking mm. processing unit, and that means that you can have a very efficient networking box, which is still commercial off-the-shelf white box, and then you can use it to separate the hardware from the software the, and the software from the applications. Et cetera, so this et comes down to the idea of hardware disaggregation. And the answer is that most networking vendors are actually all using the same ASICs and the same motherboard designs today. And, you know, there's only three or four makers of ASICs and there are some differences between them, but really they're all the same these days. Well, in a way, yes. But I'd like to kind of go back to your um Question And I was facing this question almost 15 years back, uh, like when really disaggregation just started. And the question was, who does it belong to? I mean, who should be the user of disaggregation? And, and my answer was not who, but when. And over time, this, this uh, uh, place in the network where disaggregation fits evolves. Now, you mentioned only a single ASIC vendor or just a few. And when I look into the data center domain where this area is more evolved and there are multiple players over there. The differences between them are not that vast, which is actually good. And there's also a mutual layer that kind of interconnects the the relevant software to any of these potential ASICs, which enables more options in terms of choice. Uh, And this choice gives the the power or the control over the network back to the hands of of the user, back to the hands of the customer, where in a vendor lock, type of of mechanism, which is predominant in the last 30 years, this was at the hands of the vendor. Let's let's define disaggregation from the DriveNet's perspective. We've been talking about it as if everybody understands exactly what it is, but in fact, it can mean several different things. It could be just an open source NOS writing on white box, and that's disaggregation. Or it could be, as we've been mentioning as we go here, a complete separation of control and data planes where what's happening in the control plane is on a completely separate and off box from what's happening in the data plane. Um, what is your model for disaggregation? So I would say it's all of the above and more, because as you mentioned, disaggregation, it starts from, um, you know, disaggregating hardware from software. What we added to that is the ability to cluster, to distribute the hardware and use very simple building blocks. We have just two main building blocks 
in our hardware portfolio. In order to scale those up, we simply rack and stack them and you know, look at the whole cluster, the whole bunch of white boxes as a single hardware entity. So this is one very important phase of what we do. So, so hang on. So just to, to read that back to you, that sounds like sort of like the chassis model, only I've got a bunch of fixed configuration switches um, that is sort of like line cards in a chassis, and I'm managing one gigantic entity. That's That's how I heard that. Is that about right? Yeah, but you manage it in a manner that reflects the resources of all those chassis, all the NPUs, all the compute resources, all the TCOM resources are gathered into a shared pool of resource. So you don't care where your TCOM, uh, on what white box is your TCOM or what white box serves your ports, connectivity, NPU, CPU, etc. This is transparent to the application. So what DriveNets brings is actually an abstraction layer or a, a hypervisor, if you may, that, sim- that mimics what VMware did to the compute world, mm. but it reflects NPU and CPU and TCAM resources towards the applications that runs on top of it in containers, while those applications can come from drivers, but can come from other, you know, other vendors like security vendors. Now, wait a minute, though, man, because TCAM is finite and you can have TCAM in a box and it's only going to have so many entries that you can plumb in with forwarding entries. And I don't I can't use I can't be needing to forward from one box with a certain amount of TCAM in it. And if I'm out of TCAM, I can't just say, oh, forward it through a different box because I might not be plumbed that way. Right. Yes and no. Um, You're right. Absolutely right. The thing is that all of these boxes are not acting as separate boxes in the network. Mm-hmm. Um, the internal algorithm that we're using can kind of allocate different portions of the TCAM to different applications within the same cluster of uh, what we call NCPs or line cards, if you want to compare it to a, to a chassis. To your point, a chassis is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, chassis has some good things to it. Uh, having um, a single entity um, uh, simply managed as a single entity with a huge capacity and a lot of capabilities is a good thing. The problems are it's heavy, it's expensive, <laughs> uh, you know, right. it's it's limited in terms of its ability to scale and, and change the, the capacity or change its topology. It's rigid. It has a metal enclosure around it. This is what we were trying to kind of Take in all the good things about a chassis. Oh, you won't get a fight uh, so. from me about that. I mean, I, I completely agree. <laughs> I, I've installed my share of gigantic chassis that had to live in this rack for the next 10 years because of what we spent on it. Being able to manage like a chassis, um, but have a bunch of fixed configuration switches that are one or two U that I can swap out at will as needed. That, yeah, yeah. I, I, oh, I get it. I'm with you on that. Oh, my favorite. Uh, this black plane is completely passive. Except for the times when it's actually got active electronic components on the back, like clocks. <laughs> or there's there's one chip which fails, and now I have to replace. Or my other favorite one was, oh yeah, no, we know about that chassis. Every time you put a card in, it bends the pins. It's quite well known if you're not very careful. Yeah, I yeah, had that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of chassis, just in case you didn't notice. So yeah, I'm with so you. So you may right. say that we took the good things from the chassis and throw away the bad things. It's important to understand that the cluster is not just a bad bunch of white boxes connected to a switch. Those white boxes have two roles. One is the packet forwarding role, which is the NCP, the Network Cloud Packet Forwarding, and then the NCF plays the fabric. And the connectivity between them is a fabric connectivity. So if you need to transfer traffic 
from one one white box that gets the uh, interface to another that has the TCAM resources or, or other resources required for this traffic, this is done over the fabric. Even though the fabric is distributed, it is mm. still not traffic that burns uh, into your valuable ports. So it's not it's not quite right to think of drive nets as uh, as leaf spine exactly. You know, is that there's more to the story here? Is what I just heard. Precisely the point. It's about taking multiple boxes and make all of them behave as one, as one single network node. Okay. What, so what, what are my hardware choices then? Uh, we've been talking about white boxes. We mentioned chipsets, but you can't use every chipset that's out there, I'm guessing, or, or can you? Uh, potentially or theoretically, yes, you can. In practice, obviously, this is about implementation and how does the software relate to, to the hardware. So currently, we're working on Broadcom-based uh, devices, um, within the existing portfolio, we have uh, Jericho 2 type of uh, uh, chipsets, uh, the Ramon for the fabric, both coming from uh, Broadcom. The new ASICs from Broadcom, the J2C Plus, uh, is coming in as additional boxes which are being added to the portfolio. There are and some those, additional. Those are some nice boxes. You know, we have a two rack unit wide box that holds 36 interfaces of 400. Uh, gigabit Ethernet. That's hmm. like 14 terabit per second in two rec unit. That that's a nice box. I, I like this box. And 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 to that, um, <laughs> yeah, nice density. Um, what, what what's important to note is that um, as opposed to a chassis, and and Greg, you just mentioned that a few minutes ago, uh, mm. the backplane is not a limitation, right? Because the backplane is a is a passive uh, electrical or or an active electrical cable that connects to the fabric, uh, which is being placed remotely. So the same fabric will act regardless of what kind of uh, uh, line card boxes you're using. You should tell him about the largest router in the world we uh-huh. have right here in the building. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that was a, that's the thing is because you're building line cards from the standard 1RU, 2RU, off-the-shelf switches, and you're bonding them together, you can actually scale beyond the size of a backplane, like a chassis is limited by the ability of the signals to travel up and down a backplane in a chassis. And so it can't be more than a couple of meters long. And even like most chassis backplanes can only be a meter because of the speed of the clock signal. But you're talking about by coordinating the careful configuration, by coordinating the TCAM table and and only downloading into the TCAMs what needs to be downloaded and and carefully considering what needs to be in the line card, which is actually what happens in a chassis, by the way, or used to back in the old days, uh, you can actually scale this disaggregated idea beyond the bonkers sort of size, 30, 40, 50 slots? Um, the number of slots eventually depends, or, or if there is any limitation, it's the radix of the ASIC. That's it. Um, yeah. and, and even that is something that can be break, uh, broken into um, sub-lanes on the 30s level. Uh, so we can take a four 30s, interface and break it into four so we can quadruple the size of the number of interfaces on the fabric. So in practice, it's hundreds of terabits. In theory, it's not really limited. So really what you're referring to there is the number of ports on us on an ASIC and the speeds and the, and the way that and everything's a two-tier leaf spine architecture, right? So it's not like there's any magic going on here in terms of the physical hardware. The magic is all in the software. They'd be able to make like effectively a, an infinite sized chassis exactly exactly that and because an infinite uh, you know uh, an infinite size chassis is an overkill to any single application 
the thing is, you know, we enable multiple multiple applications or practically almost any network function to run on this chassis. So we build a very large chassis, but this is the only thing you so, need to build. So coming back to what you said before about you've got AT&T as a reference customer now and you can talk about the things you can do. I imagine that what attracts them to you is the fact that they can start with a very small two, four, six, you tell me, six switch leaf spine, but scale it up to 20, 30, 40, and it's the same software pattern. It's the same design pattern regardless of where they deploy that, that solution. Um, the design is targeted for, uh, or what they started with is roughly 200 terabit per second. It's not to say that the implementation was as big on day one, but that was the, the targeted design. Uh, so they can, you know, wiggle their way around this capacity or smaller. They didn't ask for anything very bigger than that until now, uh, which is, as, as we mentioned, you know, possible, but, but not, uh, uh, hasn't been implemented just yet. Actually, they want to go small in many cases because we started core. Uh, and core is the highest capacity. So we're looking into other applications uh, within AT&T or other customers, and they're actually looking for something a bit smaller or changing in terms of size. So scaling is not only scaling up, it's also scaling down. Uh, changing the size of the implementation yeah. or changing the location also can, has an impact in terms of uh, in terms of scale. And, and one more comment, it's not just about scale. It's also, and it's a lot about the functionality. A core router has certain features running and an aggregation router is a little bit different and mm. a provider edge router is different and a peering router is different in terms of the feature set. Uh, and, and I'm not even diving into the options of multiple different uh, uh, third-party services which can be mounted on top. So the variance is great, not only in terms of, in terms of the scale, but also in terms of the potential uh, uh, capabilities. And by the way, when you talk about scale, it's important to understand that we're not talking about what we know as network engineers as an upgrade process uh, in which you need to plan, you need to notify the customer, you need to come in at night, you need to roll back from time to time. This this is a, a, an approach of never upgrade again. While you scale your capacity and functionality, when you need more hardware, you just seem, you know, you just add boxes to the cluster. This is not service affecting. You can do it. And the system uh, orchestrates and automates their uh, bringing into service. When you need to upgrade the software, you upgrade a specific container and a specific functionality mm -hmm. that is isolated from the rest of the functionality over this cluster. So those are baby steps in which you can yeah. upgrade the network forever without having a rip and replace, you know, brutal act of upgrade. And I think the other side here too is that if I was operating a network where I had that many devices in it. I don't have one operating system for the six slot chassis and another operating system for a 12 slot. I don't have one AP and it runs a different operating system to a router. Like if I've got a, an edge router over here, an MPLS edge, and over here is a core router and it comes from, and it's got different properties. So it runs a different operating system in a different API. And it I've got this- spare parts. Yeah, but to me, it's the software problem, right? Spare parts is spare parts and kind of that's a solvable problem or at least that's what executives say stupidly, but that's what they'll say, right? And they'll pretend that, oh, it's just a hardware problem. We could sort that out. Of course they can't. They're incompetent. They can't even organize an Excel spreadsheet properly most of the time. <laughs> but I mean, the point here is that if I'm writing an application on top of it, a software app to do configuration, if I've got, like telcos have 
um, the operational consoles that they use to do network provisioning. And if you're trying to talk down to 20 different brands, or even if it's a single brand, but you've got 10 different operating systems or versions of operating systems, that's a rat, that's a hard problem to solve in terms of deployment and maintenance, right? Whereas if I'm going with DriveNets, the software that you've got, and we're going to talk more about move away from architectures to the software architecture, this idea of container-driven, software-centric, not so much dependent on the hardware means that 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 model changes around somehow. Absolutely right. And the the thing that we are facing the most in terms of a challenge is to get our customers who are network-centric or network-oriented to gather or to grasp this concept, which is very cloud by its nature. The fact that software uh, controls everything, the fact that that, uh, containerized functions can be turned on and off. uh, This is something that network engineers uh, find it, I wouldn't say hard to understand, but different than what they're used to. Well, so describe Network Cloud then. I know that's one of your products. I was reading up on it to prep for this show. Um, as I was reading up, we've got the network operating system, the orchestration layer, and then the hardware, and then it all is cloud native. So so, so put that together for us and help us write as network engineers understand how that works. You, you alluded to it a minute ago and you, you caught my attention with the, uh, yeah, take a container, upgrade it, and you didn't have to do a full monolithic OS rebuild. We, and we've, we're seeing more and more of that in the networking industry. That is attractive. But, uh, but again, back to DriveNet's network cloud, walk us through it. Okay, so so we have a great slide uh, for this, but let, let's you know try to imagine a layered model, which on the bottom you have the white boxes. So this is a group of uh, you know resources that include compute resources, networking resources, TCAM, whatever you need in order to build a networking function. On top of this layer, you have the uh, hypervisor, the virtualization or hardware abstraction layer. This comes from DriveNet. The white box comes from any ODM vendor that is certified. The the, uh, basic hypervisor functionality comes from DriveNet and actually take all the resources in the cluster and abstracts them into a shared pool of resources. On top of this uh, solution or part of the solution, we have the service instance layer. This is where the actual, actual network functionality uh, is created. So it comes in containers. You have multiple service instances on top of this shared hypervisor that abstract the hardware. And in, in each service instance, you can have a BGP router, an ISIS router, a firewall, a DDoS mitigation, a 5G function, whatever you, uh, whatever you have. And uh, each comes from a different vendor. So DriveNet provides the hypervisor as well as the routing service instances, and it interoperates with third parties that provide the non-routing network functions. Now, this is quite a mess, if you can imagine it. There are a lot of blocks and a lot of stuff to manage and to bring up. And this is why we have another layer on top of it, which is the orchestration. And this is super important, and we put a lot of effort into it because this is the one that acts as the virtual chassis. This is the one that wraps it all up in a very easy to, you know, to manage, very easy to plan and very easy to maintain manner. That means that when you add a white box, you don't need to go and configure the white box and then uh, update the hypervisor that you have more resources and then allocate those manually to the different SIs that runs on top of it. The, the orchestrator, orchestrator does it all. And of course, it has northbound interfaces uh, 
GNMI, GRPC, NetConfi, and what have you towards an upper layer end-to-end orchestration system or management system or OSS, BSS, whatever. Now, all of those layers, as they're stacked, do they all run on the white box hardware or does some of it run on the white box and some of it run on, I don't know, an x86 cluster or something? So the nice thing about the white box hardware is that it has networking resources, NPUs, and CPUs. But if you have some functionality like the you know, the orchestration or like the control plane functions, uh, there's not much point in running those on the white boxes. So yeah. at part of the clusters, as part of the cluster, we also have servers. But this is just, you know, the optimization of the hardware resources you put into the cluster. You still look at everything as a gigantic pool of resources. Yeah, yeah. The cluster is the thing. And you put into the cluster the resources you need to run the components in the most efficient way. So, right, for control plane functions, for orchestration functions, you'll have some x86, some regular old compute in there. But it kind of doesn't matter from a standpoint of network engineering and architecture, how we're thinking about it. I have a drive that's cluster that does these things. I need to have a certain amount of resources that are in there. The abstraction layer, the hypervisor, if you will, is going to put all the different functions where they need to be. Um, that's just, sorry, that's just a different way. You got to get your head around that uh, if, if, if you're me. Because, and again, so many network engineers are so used to the model of everything runs on the device, on the, the white box in this case, or on you know my, my legacy router or switch. Separating all those functions like that is, uh, is a thing. Now it gets in. Here's another interesting question: If I can separate things like that, separate this cluster out, is my cluster typically going to be contained in a common data center, or would I have some parts of the cluster up in the cloud, let's say, and others on premises somewhere? It's a possibility. Um, the components which are very CPU heavy can run in a cloud, um, and and in most cases, or at least what we have deployed in most cases. It's a dedicated server, which is on-premise where the cluster is being structured uh, in practice. In theory, uh, it's it's definitely doable that these elements or these CPU uh, resources, heavy CPU resources, will run somewhere in the cloud. The the thing is that you you don't need to worry about that. I mean, this is a decision whether you want it on-premise or not. But in general, the the orchestrator takes care of um, uh, running the right uh, sessions or the right flows within the right resource or the best resource uh, that can tackle that mission. That's that's the target. That's the purpose of what we are doing here. Otherwise, we're not doing our job right. And I think that this is maybe another angle that is very uh, relevant lately. The fact that operators like AT&T, for instance, are pushing some functionality outside of the network towards the cloud like they did with the 5G core going into the Microsoft uh, Microsoft Azure infrastructure. This is a trend that I believe will be limited to a control plane functionality because when it comes to data plane, when it comes to networking intents, uh, you cannot find the right resources at the public cloud. Public cloud are based on x86 ARM or otherwise CPUs and GPUs, but they lack the NPUs. So for the foreseen future, at least, I think the the networking intense functionality will remain on-premise, on a cluster, on a private cloud, you can call it, but still it will remain on-premise. Yeah, just just to kind of comment on this, 
when you're saying that these sessions can run in the cloud, the question is where physically is this cloud located? Mm. And yeah. with edge compute taking cloud closer and closer to the network, uh, we're getting to the point where the cloud and the network are co-located. Yeah, where, the, where it's not as if you're using public cloud and just grabbing some AWS or, or Azure resources that's whatever amount of latency away and then asking it to do that work. Yeah, but the exactly. point is, with the disaggregation, you can run it anywhere. And it could be on a, as you say, a cloud that is in-house pretty much. Some We got to call it edge. We used to just call it a data center. Now we got to call it edge computing. But uh, yeah, you can put it right inside uh, and, and latency is no longer an issue. It's just architecturally what's nice or convenient for you to do if you've got a cluster of compute there to take advantage of. Exactly. So the point is, one thing is this location item, which we just covered. The other is the, the benefit of running in the cloud is the flexibility because you're basing your entire functionality on software. Software is as flexible as it gets. Um, mm. So adding new functionality or making modifications, it's all software-based and therefore a lot more flexible than the existing networks. So you said containers are where all the processes are running. They're living in a container. Does that mean I have a Kubernetes cluster sitting off to the side? I can throw my drive nets um, control plane onto a Kubernetes cluster? Is that a thing? Almost. Um, there, there is some implementation that we have done internally. It's not all Kubernetes-based. We are adding more functionality around this area continuously. The thing is that when we started, Kubernetes was not there. Mm. So there's a lot of implementation which we've done in-house. Uh, Kubernetes is also not very network oriented uh, by its capabilities. Um, so, you know, we, we kind of uh, uh, compensated for the gaps of Kubernetes uh, with our own implementation. Going to the orchestration layer, then you mentioned we got northbound and southbound interfaces as one would expect. Uh, what is the typical, how do I consume that orchestration layer typically? Is there a UI that you're providing for me? So I do a, a lot of that interfacing with the DriveNets cluster in that way. Or is it an API and I kind of need to build my own uh, layer so that I can interface with orchestration? So the answer is yes. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> so there are actually multiple UIs that we provide because when you think of it, while we grouped everything into a single cluster, still from the operational perspective, you need to manage the router, you need to manage the firewall, and you need to manage the infrastructure layer. So there are multiple UIs that provide different groups in the NOC, uh, different views of the system. They still see the router as a router and they still see the firewall as firewall. And now they see the infrastructure as a group of white boxes and the, the hypervisor layer. So those are views that are provided to the operator. But more than that, if you don't want to use our view or if you want to use a system that sees more and more end-to-end -end, uh, view, we have the notebound interfaces to do it. I mentioned earlier, we have NetConfiang, we have GNMI, GRPC, mm. whatever you need, uh, you know, just pick and choose. And I think because of your architecture, you can easily add a shim in there. So if you need to change the API or adapt to add functionality or capabilities, it's really, you're not restricted to some arcane CPU architecture like a MIPS or a, you know, like a lot of these legacy boxes are. You're just running standard Linux and inside that Linux on, you know, some x86 architecture in your controller in the, in the, the DNOS and the DNOR uh, pairing is it's, it's not mystical. The fact that you can be flexible to some extent. 
let's touch on AT and T a bit more. Um, you've mentioned that they're they're a marquee customer. They're someone that you're you're using. Okay, well everybody knows AT and T, global provider, huge. What are they actually doing with DriveNest? Did they like they replace their entire infrastructure and their whole backbone and everything is now uh, DriveNest, or is it more of a special use case thing? Uh, it's it's a special use case. It's called core. <laughs> <laughs> it's the core of the network. Uh, you're currently running on DriveNest. You guys currently in, based in the it's US. It's kind of a niche, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> so when you say core, you're saying actual core transport, or is it? 5G core or is it DWDM core? Like there's lots and lots of cores in a big telco network like AT&T. Let's drill into that just a little if we can. It's it's the very uh, core of the of the fixed network. Uh, the IP enterprise core. traffic, the IP core, enterprise yeah. traffic, residential traffic is running over us. Uh, mobile traffic is essentially running over us, even though it's not the mobile part um, of the implementation. Eventually it all boils down to this backbone and this is exactly where we are uh, located. This is why they needed that huge capacity of hundreds of terabit per second. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm guessing it wasn't just about capacity. I mean, yeah, that that's that's very cool. But it's also they must be layering on whatever customer services, peering agreements, and this kind of thing they're pumping through uh, through the DriveNet's orchestration. Not only that, uh, what was the most extreme requirement from ADAT was redundancy or reliability of the solution, and this is where most of the effort. Uh, was being put in place uh, throughout the stages of deployment. Several layers of redundancy, uh, recovery from from all sorts of uh, uh, failure, mutual failure scenarios. Uh, We were really put to the test uh, before we got uh, certified or clarified to run full capacity uh, within their network. Um, In terms of additional functionality, AT&T is also using this technology for peering uh, that's a known. Uh, it's been publicized as well. Still, still TBD in terms of other areas in the network, but this is kind of uh, moving forward. Let's drill into the redundancy component for a minute here, because there's a million standard protocol ways you can do redundancy. You got, uh, I don't know, fast reroute, for example. Are we talking about just implementing more or less industry standard stuff, or is there special DriveNet's redundancy magic we should talk about? It's it's uh, keep in mind that the, the solution needs to be standard because we are interoperating with practically everything else out there, mm-hmm. and and these other equipment is is running standard protocols. So it's definitely within the boundaries of the of the standard. But there is a very huge advantage to the fact that we are uh, spread over multiple devices. So the failure of a single device is always a very small failure domain. Whereas when you have a chassis collapsing. Um, although it's not very common, but when it happens, then your entire network, or at least half the network is down. Uh, this doesn't happen where you have a distributed model uh, where a single, even a box collapsing has a very minor impact. And because um, of the uh, inherent redundancy on how we build clusters, we can work around it. So if you take the recovery rate of, of, a, of a fast reroute and implement it into boxes, then a box failure is practically something that goes unnoticed in our type of a network. And and it's not only about blast radius or you know the the uh, high high availability protocols. It's also about the inherent fact that we built this software ourselves from scratch in order to serve a purpose. And we don't have the the you know the baggage of a huge operating system with many unnecessary. Uh, functions and and features <laughs> that from time to time crashes and cause service failure throughout the system. 
we have a very distributed and focused software. And, and you know, knock on wood, uh, this is something that proven itself uh, in AT&T and other customers. Um, this system works and it works with extremely high availability. Yeah, I wish I didn't know what you meant about uh, a big monolithic NOS running 5,000 million services, most of which I never use, causing my box to crash. I, but I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. I know what you mean because I once worked in an institution that had a very large uh, chassis-based switch, and the upgrade process uh, was going to take uh, meant taking it offline for approximately 22 hours, maybe, <laughs> right? And the way that the upgrade process worked is that you had to not, you couldn't, uh, because they delayed the upgrade and the, the software needed a custom architecture in the chassis and, you know, there was 18 line cards active and blah, blah, blah. And in the end, we were going to have to shut the entire financial operation down for a whole day. And the rollback process was there was no rollback process. So, <laughs> right. Wonderful. This was the a one shot. Or business continuity was even a phrase. Yeah. And this was a chassis that was sold as a highly available, maximum uptime, maximum stability, maximum reliability. Uh, yeah, I have I have scars, personality scars, mental scars <laughs> from working with chassis. I, I am I am here for this this type of product, this thinking. This is a, a, a question which is common uh, where, we are, where we are facing. Where is the NOS actually running? Right? And, and is it running on the NCPs? Is it running on the fabric? Is it running on the server? Is it running in the cloud? And the answer is yes. Just like Dorit <laughs> said before. Yeah, it's running on all of these places. So there is no one point where the NOS can collapse. Right. The flip side of that is that I assume that you've been able to prove to your customers to date that that complexity that because when you distribute the functions around the place, that complexity then becomes a failure point in its own right. But you've obviously been able to um, convince customers that it's not that that's not a real problem, that that's just something that you perceive. Well, it is a real problem, but we uh, solved it with an excellent orchestration system. So the, the orchestration does just that it you know mitigates the inherent complexity of the disaggregated system and then goes some you know further with automating uh, tasks you are now doing manually etc cetera, etc cetera. but but we it is a problem but it is a solved problem if you want to look at the what the magic is this is where the magic is yeah. right this is where our patents are located mm-hmm. not in the nos that you put on the switch not in the apis not in any of that which is where it's not some uh, routing protocol that's got a patents on it, right? It's in the exactly. software and the algorithms that drive the, the downloads. Yeah. Exactly. Everything towards the outside is completely standard. The inside is where the magic happens. What's on the roadmap for DriveNets? You guys have been busy building, building, building. So what, what are you building next? All right. When it comes to services... Uh, there are a lot coming. There, there are multiple services that we are working with and different companies we're working uh, with uh, towards that direction. And the plan is to put all of this in kind of a marketplace so it's going to be easily consumable. A service provider running a network cloud will simply log into this portal, uh, choose what kind of service and launch it into its uh, existing network. So launching a service will be as easy as clicking a button um, as opposed to, I don't know, pushing out trucks and, and uh, running a pilot and put potentially failing that pilot, so rolling back the equipment, purchase, and so on. Uh, so kind of a one-click introduction of a, new, uh, of a new service. 
network API is something that is that is something that we're working with with several other uh, vendors. This is something that will need to go and become uh, a standard, um, an open API, obviously uh, that anybody can use. Uh, so to make this into something more um, official and more public. Uh, good luck with adoption on that. But I, I, I hold out hope. I, I would love to see something <laughs> like that happen. So yeah, bravo on that. For the people in the audience that are listening and they're they're keen, they want to engage DriveNets, they want to try out disaggregated networking. What's the process? Where 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 would you send them? How can they find out more info? Well, first off, they can meet us. Uh, we're planning to attend <laughs> physically uh, at Nanog uh, in November, the OCP Summit, Table Tech Expo, MWCLA, yeah. Google yeah. Telecom in London, and, and many other uh, you know events that we hope. We'll take. Uh, it seems to be physically. picking up. Uh, yeah. Hopefully, it will actually happen. Uh, you know, with COVID limitations and so on. Uh, so you, you can actually meet us uh, in these places, and of course, our website. Follow us on on social media. There's a lot of stuff that we're pushing out all the time, continuously. White papers and and uh, discussion blogs, topics, blogs, and so on. So we are very active on on creating collateral. Perhaps COVID kind of uh, kicked us in that direction, but there is a lot. There are a lot of collaterals which are being created and, and pushed out. And, and if you are ready for it, we run remote demos, on-site demos, proof of concept. You know, uh, you can see it with your own eyes. Now you mentioned some kind of an AT&T event as well, I think. Yeah, AT&T, um, I know, part of their uh, deployment and push towards the, the technology uh, also includes a disaggregation summit event that they are hosting. It's going to be not just AT&T, not just DriveNet, but other vendors as well as other uh, service providers. This event is set for September 22nd, which is actually two days before this uh, uh, podcast should air. So this should be already um, in the past. Great stuff. Well, thank you for joining us today on Heavy Networking. If you're listening and you want to find out more about DriveNets, like they're all over the socials and so on, drivenets.com, or just search for DriveNets. That's pretty much their handle about anywhere, and you can find lots of great information there. And uh, if you call them up and are interested, make sure you let them know you heard about them on Packet Pushers. We would appreciate that. And our thanks to DriveNets for sponsoring today's episode. Our sponsors keep the lights on, and your hosts here at the Packet Pushers Podcast Network, fed and warm. Now, maybe you're listening and you'd like to have access to the Packet Pushers global community of IT network engineers. And if you'd like that, well, you can join our Slack group. It is premium priced at uh, $0. For your $0 a month, you can chat with other IT folks just like you about your most difficult IT problems, get advice from folks who've been there before, and share your own wisdom. And again, premium priced at, uh, at $0. That, that's a joke. It's free, right? You, you with me? Okay. <laughs> Act now. Next month, we're going to double the price. Uh, that's all at PacketPushers.net slash slack read the rules on that page there's a few of them read the rules and then sign up last but not least remember that too much networking would never be enough